Welcome to the True Voice Podcast with your host, LaShawn Smith. Hey, welcome to True Voice, where we learn more about today through stories from amazing people. This is season three. I'm your host, LaShawn Smith. Here on True Voice, we talk with people who have remarkable stories that entertain, teach, and offer a human perspective on how today's most pressing topics remain deeply connected to our past. I hope you enjoy today's episode with Dr. James Smith. Dr. Smith, welcome to the show. Thank you, LaShawn. Now, we're going to talk a lot about education. Surprise, surprise. (laughs) I'm going to ask you some questions to educate myself and our listeners. Uh, But before we get into that, I always like to start way back at the beginning, kind of hear, you know, where are you from? Give me more of your personal story before we get into some of the other topics. So, you know, where were you born and raised? Uh, Let's see, I was born in a town called Duke Horn, Illinois, which is in Southern Illinois, close to Carbondale, Southern University. Yes. Yeah. So... That's where I was born. But I was part of a military family. We lived all over the country. We lived in Germany for four years. Matter of fact, I went to junior high school there and then came back to the United States and went to do, came back to Ducoin and uh, went to high school there, all four years in high school there. And so that was the foundation for our family. My dad was a 30-year retiree. My two sisters and my two brothers were both in the military. My wife was a military nurse. Everybody was there but me. I was always in school. <laughs> so <laughs> so I, even though I was 1A, I kept getting deferred uh, for uh, getting active duty back. In, and that was back during the Vietnam War. So I was kind of lucky in a way. But at the same time, I said, I'll pay for it another way. <laughs> yeah, no, I love it. Real quick before we move off of that, you know, growing up and having the experience of spending part of your childhood growing up abroad, any of the cultural things that you noticed that was uh, that was different or maybe you even had to get reacclimated when you came back to the States? Yeah, and LaShawn, I, I think that's a lot of truth to that. Being in Germany at the time, there were blacks in Germany. Matter of fact, we were unfortunate enough to be in a, uh, in a duplex type housing with we had the upper family, and the family below us from Alabama. Okay. And my wife, my my mom is from Alabama, and she did not <laughs> like very much being uh, in the same household with a uh, with a family from Alabama, especially when they started trying to do some of the Alabama stuff. And she uh-huh. wasn't having any part of that at all. Mm-hmm. So, from a standpoint of because there was a limited number of blacks kids over there, you look at my classes, like in middle school and whatever else, I was probably one of the only black kids in that school. That, because my younger brothers and sisters were all in lower grades. But when I came back to the States, it's basically had to get a comp acclimated to everything from dancing like black folks, <laughs> talking like black folks, <laughs> right, and interacting with black folks. So, yeah, I had to go through that, that uh, reacclimation of myself. Real quick story, LaShawn, and I think you'll appreciate this. Yeah. The other night I was watching the uh, special on Marion Anderson and stuff she went through. And mm-hmm. it made me recall back uh, when we had, before we went to Germany, we had went down and spent some time with my grandparents down in Alabama. And across the street from my grandparents' house, and my granddad was a carpenter, so he had built a lot of homes over that area. But there was a Dairy Queen that was owned by a white family. And us being kind of from the north, I went over to the Dairy Queen and I saw this sign that said, white water, colored water. Mm. I could not imagine what in the hell cover colored water looked like. So I made this this uh I guess action of boycotting and going over there every day and saying out loud, I don't see any colored water. 
So this <laughs> went on for a while. And across the highway, there was a lot of black families across the highway. So I went up and down the road over there to the black families and told them, boycott this Dairy Queen because they won't change their sign with the colored water. Mm-hmm. So they did that. And they stopped buying there. And uh, probably about a three-week period of time of doing that, they took down the sign. Wow, so look took, at you. Yeah, yeah. So that was my first venture into being obnoxious <laughs> <laughs> and being and an a, activist. A, a crusader and an activist, right? Yeah. That's, that's, that's fantastic. As you got into early adulthood, you know, we'll get into you know, some of the work you do today. You spent a fair amount of time in corporate America, and I'm sure that's informed how you think about education. You know, anything along that journey around, you know, work you did in in corporate development or, or leadership or other types of things that, you know, as we start to shift to the conversation of education, that really sat with you as like, you know, that prepared you for kind of this second career that you've had? Yeah, LaShawn, I worked for Allstate Insurance Company for 35 years. I was mm-hmm. in charge of their claims and legal operations in eight different locations around the country. I had eight corporate moves, and we were away from the Seattle area for like 20 years, mm-hmm. and we came back. Uh, we, were in, we came back to here from Ohio, where I was in charge of Ohio and Kentucky, and I was in charge of the, the uh, auto, casualty, property, and legal operations for Allstate in those two those two states, which we had a lot of people, you know, all the big cities that we have in the state of Ohio and then also in Kentucky, we had a lot, I had a lot of employees. So I was, I I went from Seattle where I started off and went to Yakima. I was in my first office in Yakima. Mm -hmm. And from there I came back to Seattle and ran a commercial operation in California where I was in charge of a claims operation for Southern California, Arizona, Nevada. And from there I went to corporate our home office in Chicago, I was one of seven, I was the only black that uh, went through that, was part of that team. And they brought us back there with the idea that we would be mustering out of there in a short period of time and taking over our territory, which I ultimately did. But a quick story, uh, I had my, I had worked and got my doctorate. I had my MBA and my PhD, but it was a business administration and leadership and strategic planning. And one day uh, I was going to lunch and one of the senior VPs uh, was walking down the hall and said, hey, Jim, why don't you join me for lunch? So I had been in uh, in that back area for almost a year and we were talking and he, I didn't really brag about the fact of having a PhD. I think I was one of two uh, mm-hmm. people with a PhD, you know, there at Allstate at that time. And so we got to talking and he found out about my doctorate. So he asked me, well, can I read your dissertation? which was a legal dissertation. And I said, absolutely. So I brought it in. And unbeknownst to me, he had let the, the president of the claims operation read the PhD, the dissertation, and within two weeks, I was promoted. Wow. Within two weeks. And so I was promoted to, to Wisconsin, where I was in charge of Wisconsin, Minnesota, and North and South Dakota. But it just shows, it goes to show you that sometimes being in the right place at the right time and the right circumstances can lead to better, get bigger, get better things. Where I maybe have been able, been there for another year, or a year and a half before I had gotten that assignment and that promotion. But for what happened with the, on that particular day, right? No, totally. And I love the anecdotes uh, and those those kind of stories as we think about our journey. As we're switching over to kind of the the topic of today's conversation, which is you know just education, we're not gonna we're not gonna solve that <laughs> and all the problems around education on a you know a quick discussion. But you know 
you can be the type of person who educate, you know, myself and our listeners to, you know, get our heads wrapped around uh, kind of the, the drivers that make this such a challenging space and, you know, what we can do, how we can support and how to think about it. So, you know, one of the first questions I wanted to ask you, you know, it's a very simple question that I don't hear proposed very often. What, what's the purpose of education? Like, you know, what, what, I'm asking Dr. Smith, like, what's your response to this? What's the purpose of education? What's the purpose of education? Let me backtrack on that a little bit, LaShawn, yeah. and, and kind of explain how I got into education in the first place. All right. Even though I was in corporate America for, with Allstate for almost 35 years, I had gotten involved in education in different forms and everything. I don't mm-hmm. know if you had heard about the Opportunities Industrialization Center that was started by uh, Reverend Leon Selvin. Have not. Okay. It Tell was me more. Or, it was an organization that was started back in the day to help educate underemployable African-Americans in the corporate world. Mm -hmm. And I served on the board of directors in four different cities Hmm. on that organization. Matter of fact, I I got a plaque on my wall that was presented to me by Reverend Leon Sullivan for the fact that I had served on boards in four different cities. In those operations, I had an opportunity to see where the challenges were as far as people being prepared to accept and achieve bigger and greater things from an educational standpoint and from an op- operational and occupational standpoint. So that was kind of the foundation and migrated through these different corporate uh, assignments and everything else. I was always very active in the communities. I was always on different boards, on different committees and everything else. And I was a guest speaker at uh, several of the high schools. I was a guest speaker at two or three of the colleges there in, in uh, Wisconsin where I spoke to the business to the business classes and everything else and talk. Mm -hmm. And so that was kind of the foundation for, I said, I really like the opportunity to get involved in education and change the lives of different students and help them understand that there's opportunities from a, you know, from a corporate standpoint or from a personal development standpoint through education itself. So that was kind of the foundation for education. And that's what I see education is as an opportunity to, to improve oneself and create greater opportunities for oneself in your lifespan. Yeah, no, I think it's good to have a kind of foundational point. I mean, it's an obvious thing. Most of us believe that education is valuable and yet and still we don't always kind of revisit, you know, the core goals that we're trying to accomplish with it. So it's good to hear your take. I want to ask you two sides of this question. First, what's the best thing about the education system today? The best case I think is there is opportunity in the educational system. However, within the educational system, I think there's some underserved, marginalized students throughout the whole country and even in here in our great state of Washington. So that to me is is it's where I see education forming at this particular point that, hey, there's some good things going on, but at the same time, there's some things that are not being maximized, which is where I devote a lot of my effort in creating opportunities for students of color, especially African-American students in the educational system to make sure they not continue to be under underserved, underutilized, and marginalized. Yep. So when you talk about some of the specific issues that certain communities, you know, where they are underserved. Like, give me some more specifics. Help me understand. Give me the language that you would use to describe, you know, what some of those underlying issues are. Okay. Some of the underlying, 
if you take in consideration some of the things that are going on in our society right now, we have a, a plethora of students that are homeless, students that are in foster care system, students that are in the, in the juvenile justice system, students that, from a low-income standpoint, so they don't right. have access access uh, capabilities, everything else. So I see those as some of the greater opportunities for us to make inroads into better educating our entire citizenry, okay, and prepare our students of the day for tomorrow. Otherwise, uh, we're going to be in real trouble as a country and as a state and as a city and whatever if we don't do a better job of educating our future workforce. I had given a, uh, a presentation to the Auburn Rotary Club, and I'll keep some heck, some background later on that. But in the presentation that I had with the, with the Rotary Club, I, I tried to explain to them that, they, and these were all business owners and everything else, I tried to explain to them that they had an obligation to truly understand what their future workforce is going to be like. And this and in Auburn is, was a suburb of, of Seattle, and when they did the gentrification in the central area, there were a lot of folks that moved to those suburban communities like Des Moines and Auburn and Kent. And all. And by the way, my, my nephew is a, is a superintendent of Kent. But he had moved into those communities. And one of the things I was trying to help these, uh, these business owners understand is that they needed to maximize the effort in supporting the school system. Otherwise, they were going to have major problems, both from the standpoint of future workforce and future uh, customers. I said, when you got a community where you don't understand what the buying habits are and the needs are of this changed demographic environment that you have in here, those people are going to go out of the Auburn area to other places to buy their goods and services. Mm -hmm. And consequently, you're going to miss out on that. Furthermore, if you don't help educate that future workforce, you're not going to have employees that you're going to be able to get 5, 10, 15 years from now. Because, they're gonna, again, they're going to leave and go someplace else. So those are the kind of conversations, I think, that have to take place with business, that have to take place with the educational system, that one, the educational system has got uh, an obligation to help prepare our current students for the future. And business has an obligation to support that effort. Otherwise, they're going to be the hurt from an from a, uh, uh, employee standpoint, as well as from a goods and services and an income standpoint, an ec economic standpoint. So I want to poke at something that you said there that I agree with, and I think it has some inherent challenges. You said, hey, if uh, these businesses don't get a handle on this in 5, 10, 15 years, you know, they won't have the right employee base. At the same time, you know, many of these companies now are run by folks who don't plan on being at that company in 10 or 15 years, right? Like it's less common that the true ownership of these companies have a real stake in the local community. And so, you know, someone's like, well, I'll be out of this job in five years. So <laughs> let the next manager, like the next person, you know, kind of tackle that. How do you help businesses take a longer term view on some of these decisions where it absolutely will impact them, likely in a shorter period than they realize? But, you know, many times their leadership may be thinking more or too short term. How many of these companies anticipated what was going to happen with the pandemic? Yeah, almost none. <laughs> right, right. And the impact that that's, that's made on the economy, on the uh, goods and services that they were able to provide in the past, the fact that they've had, they had closed down, the fact that they had some challenges from a money flow standpoint, mm -hmm. they, had to, they had to lay off employees and everything else. So when you have those conversations with people, uh, business people, you say, okay, are you a, a company that has stockholders? 
You may not be here 10 years from now, but in order for this company to survive, you got to have stockholders who are willing to invest in your company. Mm-hmm. And if you aren't doing the kind of things that, sh- that you need to do to establish a solid foundation for your company and your family and your f- kids for the future, they aren't going to be there for the, for the, you know, in existence for 10 or 15 years from now. So that's right. the kind of conversation, Sean, I think that we have to have with business people is that you got to look beyond now. You got to look in the future. You got to look at what do you want to accomplish as a business? Do you want to have a long-term stability and you want long-term capitalization for your business and everything else? Or do you want to operate just on today? And given right. the fact that we're in a, a pandemic environment right now, you can see operating just for the day is very tenuous at this point. Right. I mean, it's something maybe you can connect the dots here. You know, you spent, you know, so many years in in insurance and so you understand risk management. I'm I'm pretty sure pretty deeply. Right. A lot of this is a a risk management decision, right? It, it's how much how much risk are we willing to take to be unprepared. Right. <laughs> right? Exactly right. And so when there's something as as structural as the pandemic that hits, you know, folks have no choice but to face it. Some other times uh, or other other challenges, people's hands may not be forced, right? Um, it may feel like I can put this decision off till next quarter, till next year, or what have you. As you think about, let's say, high school students and, you know, the fact that one day they're going to become, you know, maybe they'll go to vocational programs or they'll go to, you know, colleges or they'll go to get grad degrees and they'll come back and work for these companies. How do you think about helping the businesses understand how to support education all up versus just the jobs that they need, right? You know, certain, you know, if, if I'm a, a cabinet company and I need great carpenters, uh, that's going to be different may- maybe than someone who has a technology company and they need software engineers. But ideally, all these businesses would be helping all the students. How should we think about how these businesses interact? Should they just focus on the areas where they have subject matter expertise and you look at that and you get all the different businesses involved or should they be taking a more holistic approach to to education, especially at the high school level? Yeah, I think that they need to take a holistic approach to education. Let me backtrack just for a second, LaShawn. Yeah. There's a, uh, I'm a part of uh, what is called the Regional Economic Recovery Task Force. Mm-hmm. Okay. And it's broken up into two parts. One part of the op, of the task force is focused on business in general. The other part of the task force, which I'm a part of, is focused on the workforce itself. And the conversations that are being having and the strategies that are being developed take into consideration that holistic approach that you're talking about. That all the business people and all the educational people, the college presidents and everybody, have to look at it from a standpoint of we have to prepare students of today for tomorrow for any one of these. You know, it could be any of these companies that these students go into. There are students who will probably never go to college, but they have opportunities for training jobs and everything else and union jobs and everything else that will pay them a heck of a lot more money than they can make as a, as a white collar. Mm-hmm. Okay. There's yeah, that's a, a secret we don't talk a lot about, right? Uh, some don't. of those, those positions, uh, you can actually make more and more quickly. Yeah, exactly right. And right now, that's part of the focus is is how do we get some of these people that are underemployable today better prepared to be able to take some of these jobs in the future? 
regardless of what area you're talking about, whether it's from a white collar job or from a technical job or a trade job, whatever the case may be. So that mm-hmm. is I, the purpose of that work task force is focused on that. So it's a long way of answering your question, but it's what I'm saying is that all of business has to collaborate on how best to prepare the workforce of tomorrow. Right. Specific to that program or that task force, what's the metric or the success metric that you use to measure if things are, are headed in the right direction? It's just got started. And the first thing was developing the data. And one of the things from a data standpoint is, and I was very insistent on this along with some others, uh, you know, people of color, we need to have a disaggregation of the data. Where the lack of opportunities for especially business of color and employees of color exists. So mm-hmm. that was the first thing was to come up with, hey, identifying where the disparities, disparities, disparities exist. And, and that's the foundation. I think that's in a way of answering your question is that we found in a lot of the, the research that was being done and everything else that business of color, African-American business of color have been significantly disparate, you know, impacted by the, by the pandemic where well, they've right, lost. Right. Yeah. So those are the underlying discussions that we've had is what is part of the economic recovery that has to take place in this greater region, whether it's King County, Pierce County, or whatever the case may be. Part of it is how do we shore up those businesses like that who are mom and pop type business or business owners of color owned that have had significant adverse impacts as a result of the, the pandemic where they've had to shut down, lay off employees and everything else. How do we work around better uh, coming up with ways of impacting them? Whether it's from a standpoint of financial banking, federal government loans, grants, whatever the case may be. But those are the things that we're working on at this particular point. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. That seems like the right way to start. I want to go to the students here in a moment, but you mentioned the Rotary Club. Tell me more about that organization and what your tie was there. I was not a member of the club. Oh, so you're presenting. Guest. I was a guest speaker at the club, right? And so what, what's their interest for, for someone like you to come and talk to them? What do they want to get out of that combo? I was a part of the Auburn School District. When I, <laughs> even though I have my doctorate and everything else, I went back to grad school and got my teacher credentials. Mm-hmm. So I didn't You do like ed- school. You talked about all these, like you've been in yeah, a lot of classrooms. Right. I know. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I didn't get into teaching formally until after I retired. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. So, yeah. but you know, to pursue that after retirement uh, uh, approach that I wanted to take, I went back to grad school to Antioch University and got my teacher credentials. So I'm a certified mm-hmm. K teacher. But as a result of that work in Auburn, and I did my student teaching in Auburn. Matter of fact, I was uh, the one of the student teachers of the year for three years in a row. A guest, Look at you. Okay. Yeah, guest speaker. And as a matter of fact, I got a trophy over here that, that the uh, that the school district presented me as the 2007 volunteer of the year. So, right. <laughs> and that was why I got the principal or the superintendent for the Auburn school district belonged to the to the. Auditor. Oh, that's how you got pulled in. Yep. Yeah, the Auburn sense. Rotary Club. So he he's the one that set it up for me to go in and be a guest speaker at that uh, at particular time. Yeah. yeah, that's cool. But that's you know that was the foundation, Lashawn, for education from a teaching standpoint was the the substitute teaching that I did for three years for the Auburn School District. I volunteered in the uh, CLIMB program, which was an after-school tutoring program for Native American students in math and reading. I did that for three years. Mm-hmm. And I was on the diversity committee for the district. They hired me as a consultant to help them develop their uh, their school district three-year school improvement plan. 
So I, that's how I really got ingrained in the Auburn school. And I'm also still a hearing officer for the school district. But that was the foundation. And because I was starting to get pretty well known uh, about my work of paying forward, I got right. asked by City University to become an adjunct professor. So I taught four years at City University in the Master of Ed program as an adjunct professor and taught everything from multicultural education to children at risk, you know, the whole classroom management, the whole thing. So those are the foundations for the work I did as a formal teaching perspective. Now, I don't know how deep you want to get into the committees and things that I'm on or any of that kind of stuff, but that- Well, we'd love to hear, you know, uh, always time the work back to specific problems that folks are tackling. So if there's any of those that you want to call out, I would love to hear that. But what I, I find most valuable is, you know, some of the the classroom work uh, and the hands-on experience that helps you, you know, not just, you know, speak about it, you know, you, you've actually done it. And so you're going to have more insight than a lot of folks who are just, you know, armchair quarterbacks. Right. And, and again, I think it, a lot of it revolves around what I talked about earlier about talking about some of the, I'm trying to think of the right way, the disproportionate number of impacts on Children of color, especially African American kids. Yeah, and it stacks up, right? It, 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 it really be, it does. It could also be economic. It could also be mental health. It could be like it be a number of things that you know are all uh, yeah. that these students are facing, and they're not ready to learn necessarily sometimes. Or do you got teachers who don't, who quite frankly don't know how to teach to them? Mm-hmm. One of the things that uh, you learn quite, and this is one of the things that I made a big point about in the classes that I talk is teachers have to understand the learning styles of the different students that they have. Right. All students don't learn the same way. And African-American and other students of color don't learn the same way as some of the white students or some of the, even the, some of the Asian students and everything else. So that was part of the learning and teaching that I taught for teachers. It helped them understand how to establish relationships, how to build up on cultural competency training, their ability and understanding of cultural responsiveness, their understanding of how to establish relationships and communicate with families of color and students of color. And the other big thing that I was really a big part of LaShawn was the disproportionality and discipline Mm. as it relates to students of color, especially. Give me more on that one. If you look at the data and everything else, African-American boys and African-American women or uh, lady girls are despaired from a discipline standpoint, at a greater rate than whites Hmm. and even Asians. And a lot of it revolves around behavior. And a lot of it revolves around teachers not understanding the environments and everything that a lot of these kids of color are coming from. So consequently, I'll try to give you a good example. If you got a a black kid who's come from a family where um, it's a single parent, got siblings, Mother's trying to work two jobs. Mm-hmm. The older sibling who is in the class is responsible for helping take care of their siblings and everything else. They may struggle with trying to get homework out because they're taking care of their brothers and sisters. Or mm-hmm. they're ducking behind the window because there's shooting going on out in the streets. You know, those kind of things. Mm-hmm. There are behaviors from different cultures. And one of the things that I used to do is is provide the teachers with a list of things from a cultural standpoint that they didn't understand that there was a culture to it. You have to understand that there's a culture to a family that has no medical co- coverage. There's a culture to a family who has one of the family members 
that's incarcerated. There's a uh, culture and a family where you have a, a mother, like I said, working multiple jobs or whatever case would be. So there's always these cultures that people don't really understand exist as a result of the environment that the families are in. And that translates into how these kids act in school. Another example, if you've got a kid who's got a parent that's incarcerated, incarcerated and this is one of the things that I, I did some work on and everything else, that kid might feel that they were responsible for their parent being incarcerated. So consequently, that transitions into them having a behavioral problem or concern hmm. where they take to the classroom. Teachers don't understand the fact that this kid is acting out this behavior because of the guilt that they feel of having, you know, created the incarceration, you know, right. for their parent, for their parent and everything else. So those are the kind of things that I've spent a lot of time working on that social emotional learning, both for teachers and for students and everything else. But those are the kind of things that Sean, I think, I hope I'm, I'm answering the question. Uh, yeah, no, no, that's, head. that's super helpful. So let me extend that. Once you're able to w raise the awareness with the teachers, like, you know, so let's say they didn't know to even pay attention to this. Are you finding that teachers are receptive and or are they so worn out with all the other things they have to do? They're like, OK, now I understand what that's about, but I don't even have time to tackle that. Uh, like, like how, how are people taking action once they're more aware of some of these these issues? Some of them are doing a good job. of it. Some of them are really struggling with it. And one of the things that a, t a lot of teachers will tell you, especially career teachers, is that who never had cultural competency training in the past mm. will tell you that I don't know what to do. And they beg for help. They beg for help uh, understanding these things that are creating these kind of environments. For example, in a lot of these suburban communities and everything else where you had that migration from a demographic standpoint, you had school districts that all of a sudden who never had or had limited diversity in their school, all of a sudden now have classrooms where there's a lot of, a lot of diversity because right. of the movement and everything else. Ah, uh, yeah. They really struggle in how to interact with those students. They They're bringing their old playbook, right? Right. And it's like they still try to, to teach everybody with the same brush. Mm -hmm. Okay. They don't understand how to effectively create relationships with the families. They don't know how to communicate with the families. And it's not just blacks. It's, it's other uh, races, too. Uh, one of the things that in the Auburn School District, there's two school, there was two elementary schools who had an influx of families from India. Mm -hmm. And they asked me, they were struggling because they didn't know how to interact with these families and everything else. And they were really struggling. So they asked me, would I see if I could, what I could do? So what I did was I set up a, a seminar and, and uh, meeting that brought the staffs of those two schools together. Then I had a speaker from India, from the Sikh, the Mok, the, uh, the, the uh, Muslims, and the, uh, I'm trying to think of the other one now, so I haven't slipped my mind, it was three different uh, sects within the uh, India. And they gave a presentation on the ed educational, they had breakouts, and they did an education on the philosophies, you know, of the mm -hmm. educational philosophies, the family values, all those kind of things for those two staffs. And, it went great. It went great. And there was a great understanding, a lot of good questions, a lot of dialogue that went on back and forth. And when we got back together, the teachers were just so grateful that I was able mm. to set that up. 
because they had a better understanding. And what transitioned after that, LaShawn, is that there was a greater participation by those Indian families in the school environment. They became part of the PTA. The kids were assimilated in and were able to make friends and everything with, with the other students and everything else. And it, it just a complete turnaround. And, it, and <laughs> the funny thing about it, because this was a, folks of India, the funny thing about it, when we brought everybody back together, you know what they asked me? What's Can that? you do the same thing for the people that are coming from Eastern Europe? <laughs> <laughs> you know, like the like the folks coming from Yugoslavia and Russia and all those places. Mm-hmm. A lot of the demographics now, you think about people talk about the, the demographics that exist being a lot more people of color. There's a lot more people of, from Russia, Yugoslavia, and all those places that are coming into the States also. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, no, that's that's super interesting. I know there's no answer to this, but I want to hear your take on the topic of mindset. So what we've hit on so far is, you know, some of the things that we can do to train and prepare teachers to be more ready. On the flip side, you know, if you have a student who, you know, if they think things are hopeless, they don't have a mindset where they're willing to change, kind of even kind of get started. You know, it's kind of really hard, I think, many times to get through to those types of students. What's your take on on getting that piece unlocked so that this, you know students are ready to learn? I, I think the key thing is for them to be able to see people in front of the classroom that look like them, who can communicate to them that there is hope, that mm-hmm. you don't discard your dreams. LaShawn, I know you're familiar with the Breakfast Group. Yep. Okay, and you understand with our project, Mr., and everything else. That, share, share that with for folks who aren't familiar so okay, folks know the project, uh, the project yeah project mr program is a program where we have the seattle breakfast group is made up of approximately 70 of the leading african-american uh, males in the uh, uh business people there we have business people doctors lawyers whatever as part of the organization but the the program itself is where we create classroom environments and we have instructors paid instructors that actually take these young men through the learning process of developing their understanding their life cycles and everything, everything, everything from how to write resumes to mentoring them for classes that they're struggling in and everything else. And everything they do things like field trips and all these kind of things. And it's focused on African-American males. These are classes from usually anywhere from 15 to, to 19 young men. And they're in Cleveland, Garfield, uh, Rainier Beach, uh, you know, lots of places, but I get yeah, this is a pretty broad. Yeah, for uh, the primary high schools, and we just added Kent, mm-hmm. Kent Lake from uh, the Kent School District, and they're looking at uh, uh, West Seattle and possibly uh, one of the schools up up in the North End. But they're focused on helping these young men understand that there is life after school, and there are opportunities. Here's the two kickers on this. With the makeup of the breakfast group, you have, like I said, doctors, lawyers, entrepreneurs, all kind of people. Each one of the, before the pandemic, now they do it via virtual, but each one of the members would go in, in front of the, that class in one of those schools every Wednesday mm-hmm. and talk about their career and what education meant to their success. Mm-hmm. So they, these young men, these African-American young men, got an opportunity to see role models, somebody that. They can sit there and talk to them about, hey, I didn't start off on a pedestal up here. I started off struggling just like you're doing in this classroom. I wasn't real good in math or I wasn't good in English or whatever the case may be, language arts or whatever the case may be, but I stuck to it and here's the byproduct of my efforts. Mm. I'm a success. I was a success in my career. 
made a lot of money. And all these young men always they all want always want a nice car. <laughs> perk and, up when they hear that. Oh part, yeah, right? they like the perks and all the other stuff. But uh, those are some of the kind of things that the breakfast scoot uh, does. We have a a, a big Taiwan on luncheon every year. Uh, mm-hmm. It's attended by some three hundred people, and some captains of industry will be there, and they will basically uh, be a mentor of the day. We break out, and we have young men from all the different high schools that'll come in and we'll match them up with one of these captains of industry and they become their mentor for the day. We have a good, a great program, a presentation, usually have good guest speakers and everything else. And it's usually done at one of the top hotels downtown and everything else. That's a, a an annual function. And it's also a money raiser for the pro, you know, the programs we have. The other thing we have is called all achievers. And that is a, again, another where we recognize young men, that get recommended to us by the by the counselors, and we present scholarships every year. We've presented almost six hundred thousand dollars in scholarships. These mm-hmm. young men. We were talking at the breakfast book board meeting the other day about this young man who uh, who's got a help through the program, and now is very successful, and just is donating three thousand dollars in scholarships every year for one of our members who passed away. In his name. Wow. Okay. Mm. We had another young man who went through the program who just de- recently graduated from West Point. We mm. got him going to historical colleges of you know black colleges. So the program is is working really well. And Dr. James uh, Carter, who is heading up that program for the for the breakfast group, has just done an outstanding job in interacting with that program and the, with the Urban League and with the Seattle School District and and getting more and more kids involved in it. That's great. And there's something you said that I think is a good segue to my next question. You know, you're adapting and the program is adapting in the face of the pandemic to, you know, speak with people remotely, whether that needs to be over a video call or something else, uh, since you can't necessarily go to the classroom. What's your, I'll break these up into some different questions. Uh, First, you know, this concept of the flipped classroom, you know, where you watch the video or the lecture first, and then the teacher's there to help you facilitate questions or go through your homework or, or what have you. What's your take on, you know, that as a solution to get students more engaged? Do you think that's positive, negative? It depends. What's your thinking? I think it depends. And what we're finding and what we're hearing back from research and everything else that a lot of the kids of color, quite frankly, have progressed better through that remote learning hmm. where they get that one-on-one you know, participation and support and everything else. And some of them, quite frankly, are struggling mightily because they don't have that personal interaction and everything with the teachers and everything else. So that's why I say it depends. Yeah. Uh, And it goes back to your point. I think, uh, you know, we all learn in such different ways. We have to prepare the teachers and the system to be, to accommodate, you know, these different styles. Right. And the other thing, Lashana, and I think this is a problem that's ongoing is accessibility Mm -hmm. to technology. And there was a lot of struggling with uh, not everybody had ex- access to, to Wi-Fi. Mm-hmm. Not everybody had computers. And a lot of situations uh, we found that when you got some of the larger families and everything else, if the school district and corporate America was providing a certain number of computers for a family and you had seven kids, there were some real challenges there on all those kids being able to get online and do their homework. No, not enough bandwidth to actually connect. Exactly right. Right. So that's why I said it depends on a lot of things, whether or not they were able to successfully have access to learning and teaching mm-hmm. and learning 
or whether or not they felt comfortable in that environment as opposed to an in-person environment. And we're, we're going to find out that there's a lot of they, some of the problems that they're they're dealing with is absenteeism. There were a lot of kids that, quite frankly, were not hooking up and not, you know, working with the system and learning, teaching and learning. And absenteeism is a real challenge because if the kids are have a certain amount of absences, they get referred to a truancy situation, and that becomes a pathway to to the juvenile justice system. Right. Okay. So those are some things that we're trying to create better opportunities to eliminate the absenteeisms and get the parents more involved in making sure their kids are actively involved, get the teachers more involved in one-on-ones so that they keep a track of these kids and everything else, making an impact on kids that are homeless, kids that are part of the foster system, all those kids that are on disabilities. Right. All those kind of things are things that we're kind of focused on. And some of the committees that I'm on, almost some legislative committees that are, that are really focused on some of those things and have created legislative bills that have gone through that have created positive impacts on some of these things. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, certain topics, healthcare, uh, what we eat, education, because there's so much variability in how we implement the solution, you know, it, you know, people look for the simple answer. And sometimes it's like, well, hold on, uh, we, we need a lot of ways to tackle this problem, because we're all going to interact with the system in you know, our, our unique ways. One of the things I just wanted to hit on this a uh, couple things before we start wrapping up, you know, People, especially a lot of our kids today, they consume a lot of media. A lot of it's on their phones or other devices, whether it's social media or what have you. At the same time, some of these, you know, these online platforms, social media platforms, you know, let's say something like like YouTube. There's a ton of great educational content on YouTube for free. At the same time, you could be watching stuff that's you know giving you misinformation and leading you astray. Like, like what's your take on the role of or how should educators be thinking about taking advantage of, of social media? I think you hit it on, on the head when you said that there's access to certain things that are very positive. And at the same time, there are access to certain things that are not so positive. And I think part of the teaching part of it goes into helping identify those things that are like the Khan Academy and right. things like this. They're, teachers, if they can take that responsibility of supplementing the teaching that they're doing, teaching and learning that process, additional resources and everything else, I think that that's the positive way to do it. At the same time, it's important that teachers help kids understand, stay away from these, because these are negative things that have negative impacts, misinformation, and everything else, where you can use these resources, which are resources that we've we've uh, uh, monitored and made sure that they were act, you know, appropriate for it and everything else for the students. So I would say, Sean, that there's a lot of YouTube stuff out there that is tremendous. Some of the stuff with the Project Mister, because they have, kids have the, uh, the uh, cell phones and everything else, they can access actual classes and things on their cell phones. So they can do it right. away from, they don't, they're not even in a classroom anymore. We're conducting those classes through Zoom. Yeah, that's great. Okay. And they can do those on their phone and everything else from their houses or whatever case if they don't have access to computers and stuff. So, yeah, there's a lot of work going on, LaShawn, a lot of areas with education. The big thing right now is trying to come up with viable ways of reopening schools and getting kids back into the classroom. And I don't know if that's going to happen. Right now, it's, some of it's been forced 
by the government. Mm -hmm. And there's some concerns on that from a perspective of all of the physical locations are not up to standard from a ventilation standpoint or any of those kind of things. So there's some safety issues there. There's some misinformation with regards to whether or not kids are can be exposed to the viruses or whatever case may be. And we're finding out that, yes, they can. And they're finding isolated cases where there are young kids that are being exposed to those viruses and everything else, high school kids and everything else. So it's very critical that they make the right decisions on how to create the environment for learning for the kids that's going right. to put a, make it a safety issue also. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. I want to switch, uh, you know, as I know you spend a fair amount of your time on K-12, as students graduate high school, you know, what are any thoughts you would share on reskilling and upskilling, uh, you know, once people are in the workforce to make sure they, you know, they can keep their jobs, right? Like uh, increasingly, you know, the, the requirements to even keep your job are going up. You can't just even do the same thing you did last year. Right. You know, like, what are your thoughts on, you know, how young adults can think about upskilling and reskilling to make sure, you know, over the course of their career, especially early on, that they, they stay prepared and employable? In some situations, I've used myself as an example, that I was never content to just remain status quo. I was mm -hmm. always in a learning environment to create opportunities for myself from a career standpoint. And I kind of use that as an example of what you can accomplish if you take that extra effort to keep an alert. You know, lifetime right. learners is critical. It's lifetime learners are critical. And some of the, the things that you, you talked about K-12, some of the issues that exist in K-12 also exist and higher ed. I'm mm -hmm. on the I'm on the University of Washington President's personal minority community advisory committee. And we have those kind of conversations. And that committee is a very powerful committee with some very powerful people on it, but they're from the communities of color. And right. we have some of those same conversations of how do we improve the things like the persistency of graduation by students of color, especially African American students and African American male students. How do we deal with eliminating the need for remedial education because maybe a, a student didn't get a real strong foundation in K-12 for things like math or whatever case are the requirements for the, the, the uh, admission requirements for getting into higher ed and everything else. So yeah, a lot of those things that you talked about are things that even after they get from graduate from high school and get into college, they got to continue to work <laughs> diligently the best right yeah, it never stops yeah never stop because if you don't then you wind up going two years or three years and never graduating mm -hmm. because you, you don't be successful in your classes your gpa starts to drop or whatever the case may be i'm sorry to keep bouncing back and forth no it's good but last summer i taught a class in the michael foster school of business an mba class they asked me to come in and do a guest presentation, which I did. And the presentation was on equity, diversity, and inclusion in the global marketplace. Mm -hmm. And they were all MBA students. And we got into those same conversations with uh, those students. And I asked the question of, of some of those students, why are you in this MBA program, even though you happen to be a manager for a company or an executive for a company? And there was a level of understanding in that whole group that in order for them to continue to achieve their ultimate goals from an employment standpoint, they needed to keep learning. 
right and keep appearing themselves so that i say is yeah is kind of an answer to your question is that in order to continue to progress unless you want to stay at the at the beginning level jobs you got to continue to make yourself because there's a highly competitive world out there absolutely and, yeah and you're comp- you're competing with the next person that's in that same organization that you are that who's going to ultimately have the opportunity to become a supervisor or manager or whatever the case may be and quite frankly if you say status quo you may not be the person that ultimately gets those opportunities right now that makes sense last question for you as we are wrapping up today this has been a great convo you've spent a lot of time, as we talked about, in formal classrooms. You've been living life, so we learned through that as well. Uh, you've been a teacher, a facilitator, an instructor, so you've been teaching folks. So you have a data set that most people don't have. As you look at all of those experiences, what would be the, I would say, single most uh, important piece of advice you would give folks to stay motivated on their path to lifelong learning? I'm trying to think on that one. I, I think the key thing is never give up on your dream. Mm. All right. Always understand what's necessary in order for you to achieve your dream. Create the foundation for achieving your dream. You talked about me as an experience. I had certain dreams that I wanted to accomplish. I had dreams that I wanted to accomplish within the corporate environment. Right. As I was getting closer to retirement, I had dreams of what I wanted to accomplish in my after retirement environment. And I kept preparing myself to be functional and proficient in those different dream areas that I was trying to get. That to me is is what it is. There's another organization as we wrap up, LaShawn, that, that I'm on the board of, and I don't know if you've heard of them or not. It's called a Black Education Strategy Roundtable. I have not. BESR. And it's the organization that, uh, that uh, is focused strictly on African-American students and families. Hmm. And we started off as a, as a volunteer organization back when I was part of the group that helped get that started. Now we've matriculated up to where it's a formal 501CK organization with an executive director, with an office man, uh, you know, uh, assistant, and we're getting ready to add some additional people. We have a board that is very, very powerful and is focused on, and we got grants from, uh, from uh, some of the uh, big grantors I was trying to. I'm hitting some of these, some of these uh, blank areas here. Foundation, mm-hmm. in other words, money. We started off as a volunteer organization, and we got we eventually first got a nine hundred something thousand dollar grant. That it was kind of like an organizational grant, and we got this. We went through the whole process of developing the strategic plan and all the other things. And then we got subsequent grants, and we we've, we've gotten a couple other big grants for hundred thousand dollars a year. Uh, some other grants that are helping found, uh, fund all the things that we're trying to accomplish. But we're getting, we've gotten involved in all of these different things and partnering with different organizations and everything else focused on impacting opportunities for African-American students, whether it's from a standpoint of understanding what the barriers are to how do we help families understand how they matriculate through the whole process of education. I'm also, I, was, I just finished up my second term as a uh, commissioner on the Commission for African-American Affairs. Mm. And yesterday I made a presentation to them on another uh, committee, a legislative committee I'm on. They they asked me to come and give a presentation on the works of that committee, which I did and everything else. So there's a lot of work going on and and I'm involved in about 14 boards and committees and commissions and everything else. You're not retired, man. 
No. And you know what? <laughs> and the thing about it is, is people ask me about that a lot. And my answer is always one thing, is that if I'm not doing that, then a lot of these meetings where decisions are being made, there's none of us at the table. Mm. And a lot of these committees and everything else, I may be the one and only. And you have that voice. And I make sure that there's a voice being heard for our community. Yeah. And and those are some things that I take very seriously. Matter of fact, I got recognized three years ago by the Central Area Chamber of Commerce as one of the six African American men who are doing the outstanding doing the most outstanding things for the African American community. That was a great honor for me. Right. Yeah. You see my wall here. Uh, mm-hmm. I got four our, walls. Our, our audience can't see it, but yeah, I see plenty yeah. of uh, plaques and certificates. Yeah, you're doing yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, and that's it. That's it, LaShawn. And it's like, uh, yeah, it's tiring. And sometimes there's some capacity issues and everything else. But I, I'm strongly committed to paying forward. And somebody asked me one time, how do you want to be remembered? And my answer has always been, I want to be remembered as a person who tried to make a difference. I love it. Well, this is fantastic. Dr. Smith, thank you again for joining us today and sharing your story. Listen, this has been a pleasure. And it's it's always nice to be able to let people know that there are people that are working behind the scenes and everything else and trying to make a difference, especially for our community and for our kids of color. Absolutely. Before we leave, tell our listeners where they can find uh, any of the organization's uh, websites that you might want to share. Trying to think right off the top of my head. If you go on to uh, the Seattle Breakfast Group, uh, if you Google Seattle Breakfast Group, you can get into that organization and see all the things that are going there. And the Black Education Australia Roundtable, same thing. If you Google that, it's uh, BESR.WA. You can see some of the stuff that we're doing in that. And the key thing when you go into these different different organizations and everything else, take a look at the Board of Directors and see the tremendous, trying to think of the best way of saying it, powerful people that are dedicating their time and effort to make things better for our kids and our, our community. And the final one, I think, is uh, if you go on the OSPI, which Office of Superintendent of Public Instructions website, and you look up things like the EOGOAC, which is the Education Opportunity Accountability and Oversight and Accountability Committee, you will see the things that uh, we're working on that, and I'm on that committee, been on it for 11 years. And a lot of the things that we've done and created with legal, uh, legislative bills and everything else that are creating some tremendous impacts on education. Everything from the disproportionality of discipline, the fact that I shared with you earlier about mm-hmm. all the uh, kids of color, uh, men and uh, girls and boys, have been disproportionately disciplined with with um, expulsions and suspensions and those kind of things. Yeah. And there's a lot of work that's gone on that and, and help improve that whole process. And I think that those are some things that take away from our kids learning when they get expelled or suspended or whatever else because of a behavior issue, which has no value whatsoever. And one of the things, and I'll end this up, one of the things that I've kind of beat on the table about, they, you know, when districts tell me that they're doing these better jobs on discipline and everything else, my question is, how many kids in the elementary school do you have out in the hallway with discipline pro? sitting on the desk out in the hallway because of a discipline. And how many of those kids, when you disaggregate the data, are kids of color? Mm. And there are no way that those kids are learning out there in the hallway. So those are some of the questions, the difficult questions that we have to keep asking uh, to make sure that people keep it on top of mind. 
Well, it's great that you are there and you have a seat at the table to raise that awareness. And uh, so this is fantastic. And I want to thank everyone else who's listening in, joining us today with this conversation with Dr. Smith. Uh, We hope each of you have also enjoyed your time. As we're wrapping up, please leave a great review wherever you listen to our show. I'm LaShawn. Thanks again. And remember, dream big, stay curious, and always share your true voice. See you next time. This is True Voice.